Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Gold Ghosts and Guns podcast for August 30th, 2021. My name is Tom Luongo and we have a lot to talk about. Today it's episode 83 and um, I want to talk about the acceleration of events that are happening, especially in U.S. foreign policy. And it seems that we have this major debacle in Afghanistan. There's so many different ways to tackle what's happened in Afghanistan. And for me, it, it's it just feels like a really good teachable moment. And so... One of the ways to do that, and I have my uh, good friend Dexter White with me today, and we're long uh, long time uh, collaborators in in storytelling and, and and analyzing things this way. And we wanted to look at things from the perspective of uh, from from a storytelling perspective. Like we've reached a particular, I think, inflection point in the story of U.S. foreign policy, and I think Afghanistan becomes a very interesting kind of microcosm of everything, both good and bad. Uh, for U.S. foreign policy. So, Dexter, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, Hi, Tom. Great to have you back, as always. And how are you doing? Good, good. Um, Before we get started, I'd like to just uh, observe a moment of silence for a three-year anniversary of the passing of a great American patriot, Um, John McCain's brain tumor, uh, died three years ago today, uh, the 25th, rather, this past week. So uh, i just really like to recognize that. And there goes my uh, my resume at the Federalist. Just went to the bottom of the pile. I guess yeah, my the, my long dream of becoming a fluffer for the deep state is yeah, slipping it, away. It is uh, sad that it only had one life to give for its country. Yes. So. <laughs> so. Speaking Sorry, of, I didn't mean to just jerk the uh, whole thing to the left that way. Oh, no, that was but, fantastic. You know, I, I mean, it's, it's a joke that never gets old. I, I've done it on my yeah. live stream many, many, many times. And, and ever, whenever it comes up, we, we always observe that moment of silence. So it's all good around here. So, um, so Dex, from, you know, from your perspective, I mean, you really stop to think about this. Like Afghanistan, I mean, there's been so many different takes on this. And there's so many different ways of dealing with, with this, uh, this issue. But for me... It's so very clear that in the great scheme of what's happening, I think it's a great story that's being told right now or that everybody wants to believe is being told is this kind of the end of the U.S. empire. 
And along with that, of course, is the the the, the shifts and that are happening in geopolitics and what's happening in foreign policy wise. So, um, you know, when you start talking about, you know, like movie making and, and you start look breaking down a story by its into its component parts, like where do you think we are here? Right. Um, act um, one, the term turn, you know, yada, yada, yada. Well, a, a word about like, you know, I, I think when you're looking at the story arc of U.S. foreign policy or, or I guess domestic policy, but I think we're going to talk mostly about foreign today. Um, mm-hmm. When you look at those kind of story arcs, you know, this is a metaphorical kind of comparison. I think you have to ask yourself, like, what am I comparing this to? Like a good movie mm-hmm. <laughs> that had um, a visionary director uh, or or just a, like a bad sequel. And, um, you know, because I think, you know, the metaphors can be like very apt mm-hmm. in terms of what goes wrong in filmmaking. Um where we find ourselves, you know, on the world stage, like America is not looking its best. And um, I don't know what the worst movie you've seen, like recently or or not even recently, but just like the worst walking out of a movie's uh, feeling you've ever had due to really bad writing and everything going like sideways. But that feeling is very accessible to me this week after everything that's happened in Afghanistan. I, I'm not someone who's known for an excess of optimism. Mm-mm. I think that's the conservative way to say it. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, I, I got to tell you, I was pretty floored by what happened in like not not just this last week, but like the whole progression of events in Afghanistan has actually shocked me with the the depth of just inanity just that's coming out. So um, to me, like this movie sucked and uh, mm-hmm. it has the feeling of like a bunch of writers who are rewriting a script that is a bad sequel that somebody else wrote and is off the project. And there's 10 producers and uh they keep saying we'll fix it in post and um, there isn't enough time to really edit it and it's going to get released no matter what. And it doesn't look good now. (laughs) And it's, it's, it's it's like that difference between now you really stop to think of it like two cultural touchstones here. It's like sometimes you get, uh, a, a perfect example is is the in sequel. So you you get Alien, then you get a great sequel on something like Alien Two or Aliens, where James Cameron knew exactly the movie he wanted to make and how he was going to differentiate it from the original film. And then, well, there's the inevitable after Aliens goes and does better business than the original. The studio then turns around and says, "Well, we want Alien Three. And if anybody knows Alien Three's you know, story. It's, it's insane. Like how many different directors, how many different screenwriters. And you go, when you, you know, I always, whenever I walk into a movie, I don't know about you, but whenever I walk in and I see the story by, and there's like three people and then screenplay by, by like six people, I'm like, Oh, this is not good. And I'm very generous when I, when I walk in, I'm like, Oh, this is not going to be good. And it's rare when you see that many people working on a story, um, that it ever turns out really well because it's a, it's a something by committee and then there's the inevitable studio interference and all the rest of it. Right. Um, well, I think one of the things about film, like, you know, someone who likes film in general, like a, a lot of us kind of come into it and we believe the sort of auteur theory never having been involved in a film production. And, um, you know, those, those who have been involved in film productions will tell you that, you know, that's all cute, but the reality is it's a very, very hard job with lots of people working and, and to fulfill a creative vision is very difficult. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of filmmakers complain or they, you know, they they perseverate for years about the cut they wish they had made. But, you know, the reality is, is 
there comes a moment where you got to do the thing. And um, I think the American foreign policy, like the auteur theory of the U.S. presidency is is an interesting, equally useless idea that we all have all hold Mm -hmm. because what the reality is is that the state department the deep state like the the cia each domain of independent you know analogous to you know the studio production budget office you know the the licensing department the whoever the whoever they're all going to do what they're going to do and um you know the idea that the u.s president even when they're objectively competent and i'm not sure when that was in our lifetime Mm -hmm. but um but like, e- like even to imagine the U.S. president as the auteur of of U.S. foreign policy, as the director, as the one who's going to edit it and like wear his beret and in the, the edit suite, mm-hmm. it's it's just not a realistic thing. And so here we are. There's no script. Um, there's no writers meeting. I don't think like mm-hmm. there's not even like there is a team edit going on on the script, mm-hmm. and they didn't even talk to each other. No, they didn't. <laughs> so, I, mean, it's, I think it's I think it's abundantly clear that they didn't talk to each other. And then there's the inevitable, um, and then there's the inevitable um, studio interference or outside interference from be it the money men or the you know the, the political hacks or in this case the studio. You have my pet theory I'm on on most everything at this point, which is you've got Davos in Europe trying to influence things. You've got China infiltrating things from below. You've got entrenched fiefdoms within each of these verticals for lack of a better term within corporate you know usa inc right that are all doing their they're all doing their thing and at some point we like to and i believe that we're all we're very good at this because we're pattern recognition uh, monkeys that you know we're really good at pattern recognition and we want to believe that there is this kind of through line or you know singular narrative that runs through all of this and i know i'm just as guilty of this as an analyst as anybody else so i'm not i'm not throwing stones here or nothing but um it just seems to me like uh this is something that sometimes you have to not do that it, it, like that the, 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 to want to like add that layer of linearity or or cause and effect to all of these events um is dangerous you know, even right. if it does feel like it's going to, I know you and I talk about this privately all the time. This is, you know, what we do and, you know, and it just comes up and you remind me not to you know, put too much faith in cause and effect. Um, well, I think one of the things, um, you know, one of the problems with where we live on, on the timeline of our lives is we're now at a point where the, the national and international media is almost useless um, in terms of providing us information we can use um, that we can believe, you know, in our personal mm-hmm. lives. So we're all left trying to map reality. Like, how do we map reality? Are these facts true? Are they real? Are they distorted? Are they false? Mm-hmm. And those are all different questions. And we're also just so hurried through our ability to to just digest all this information. And, um, you know, I think there's there's a there's a problem with, uh, you know, everything that's happened in Afghanistan has been, you know, like there's just like a refusal for most people to even believe what they're being, what they're seeing, you know, it's right. a, and, uh, I'm not sure what to say about that, honestly. Um, like I don't have a big, you know, a big takeaway, um, other than to say, you know, we, we have to judge what we see, um, in a way that makes sense for us. And, uh, the story metaphor I think is, uh, you know, is is as good as, uh, you know, an explanation explanation I've come up with, you know, to try right. to inject my layer of 
mapping on top of this stuff. So right, I think that's I think that's that's fair. I just you know we're we're kind of doing this today to to remind all of you and to remind ourselves even that this is a very difficult thing to parse. And these are very difficult um, events to analyze and especially in real time, which is what we're all trying to do. Um, and I know that the, the people who are, are the architects of some of these things thrive on this lack of, of, of settledness, this, 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 uh, this in, endemic chaos that they've you know, honestly created or helped create, even if it's not uh, intentional to have created. So, it, right? can, so can maybe we should um, like I really don't think this was a good movie. So maybe let's take a stab at kind of pulling a, pulling out why this you know, we don't have to overdo the metaphor, but like, you know, sure. why didn't this thing work? Like what what right. went wrong um, with this? And I've just got a couple like points to bring up we can, you know, address or not. Um, mm. You know, I think the fundamental backstory here is there's there's clearly a failure of alignment of interests of the various actors. Mm-hmm. Now, who we think the various actors are, who the average person does. Um, as I said before, it's hard to parse out what we're being told. And, you know, like, I definitely, you know, you and I have had conversations about what constitutes like schizo posting and what constitutes speculation, you know, and, right. and how to how to like, you know, drag ourselves into the ladder because it, it's really hard to just look at what what's coming in over the bow and be like, how do I make this make sense? Right. So um, I think we have, a, a you know, a military objective in Afghanistan that was there were a series of of inability for there to be a, an alignment of interest with them what the military constituted a win the state department constituted a win and whoever was president at the time constituted something they wanted to go and get behind whether mm-hmm. it's a win or a release of pressure from you know the previous fuck-ups in, in afghanistan um and again pick any point on the timeline drop the needle and um you know we had multiple surges that were tactically effective, right? The, right. The, the, US, the US military did not lose in Afghanistan. You right. can't take over a country with 2,500 guys, even with air support. We negotiated with the Taliban to not attack our guys. We drew down our forces. Um, and these are, you know, these are important facts because a lot of people have turned this into the defeat of the American military. It's like the American military basically left and the Afghanis, negotiated with the Taliban in many places to give them the village. And they did so at a rate that was probably slightly higher than our intelligence services thought they would. And, um, you know, we thought we had bribed enough people sufficiently. And, you know, the problem is, is the U.S. is good at accounting for the dollars spent. But because we've outsourced the dying to the Afghanis and we basically treat them like, you know, animals, I think a lot of them were just like, you know what, all these piles of money are cute, but like we're going to have to deal with the Taliban and we have we have a choice. We either fight them for our village and lose because we're not as good at this as the Taliban is. Mm-hmm. Or we just, you know, we just have a jirga or whatever they call it. And we're going to sit down and the elders are going to talk to the Taliban and then we're going to agree next Wednesday. They're going to roll into town and they're going to take some pictures and it's their town and we're not going to fight them and we're going to keep the money the Americans gave us and we're going to keep the money the Taliban gave us and the rest is whatever happens. And that story got told a lot in Afghanistan and it happened so fast that here we are. And, um, you know, those are, those are just some kind of like, you know, those are some elemental facts that I think are important here. Like 
the U.S. And then the Bagram thing is just a f- complete failure of management. Like it, it makes no sense why you would not keep Bagram till the last second. Right. Like like you so, just the rest. To remind I, yeah, I, to, to to remind everybody, we evacuated the Bagram Air Base north of Kabul before you know getting everybody out of country and and which was the one place in in the in the area that we could that, that we could accurate yeah it's like know, 25 miles outside of town long access roads clear vision like walls like we can defend that place we've been right. doing it for 20 years right. and uh the, the taliban like even if they broke their agreement and came at us with everything we could have stopped them and it was just it makes no sense why we didn't just say look we're gonna well, and then when, but yeah, I know, I know, it it does make no sense on the well, surface. Well, but then you have to ask the we've been presented is, you know, with two. So, so here's something to process. We've been presented with two narratives to explain this, and there clearly is some conflict between the editor and the director here. <laughs> um, the director tells us with his beret on, with his ice cream cone, um, that you know he he made the decision and they. They, they gave me this advice and I followed it. And, and editorial says, hey, whoa, whoa, um, you know, we told you this wasn't enough men to to manage this. And um, basically, we're being told that, like, they they wanted to keep Bagram, but the uh, the administration ordered a level of manpower that was not compatible with keeping Bagram. They told them that they said, well, we told you the level of manpower and that's the controlling thing. And they're like, OK, we got to close Bagram. And and that's basically what we're being told um, is the the real story. So that's a you know interesting. <laughs> I, I interesting. It doesn't sound believable. It sounds like the uh, it, this is one of those moments when you're sitting there watching a movie and you're saying to yourself, okay, that plot point doesn't scan, right? Well, it is weirdly believable though because it's the kind of thing that look military decision making is very rigid and mm-hmm. um political decision making has got high variance and i think this comes down to do we have a president in name only or do or who is actually performing the activities of the presidency is it susan rice is it kamala harris who mm-hmm. is it and are they consistently interacting with dod saying, hey, we need X, and and then ignoring DOD going, hey, you know that meeting we had two weeks ago? We told you if you did X, we'd have to do Y. Well, you're telling us X again, so we're doing Y. You sure with that? And they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I mean, in in a uh, sense, and- I could see it being true. And, 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 and literally, as badly as this has gone, I think a lot of people who are normally pretty like, protect the president no matter who it is whether it's obama trump are are like they're really throwing in the towel and Mm -hmm. um i think interesting things are happening i think that's listen they didn't send out a letter to all these uh uh, retired naval officers telling them they can't shit talk the president um even though it's it's not legal but they did that not for the people who were retired they did that for the people who were not retired (laughs) right and which where but that's already part of their um that's already part of their 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 commission right they're not supposed to be uh you know uh countermanding or or correct or, correct or, yeah senior senior military no, but that's, that's, they're that's, trying that's, to prevent they're trying to prevent a vinman level right. uh like whistleblower nonsense um right. or not nonsense 
Right, I know. Um, so, I mean, so when we look at it from this perspective, and you, you brought up the points of the, the various fiefdoms and the various you know, departments, like not on the same page here. Like, so we have this, we have this bad edit comes back from Afghanistan, and now looking at this in the bigger picture, what does this actually look like for the, you know, going forward? And you know, how did we get to this point? Is actually just as good a question as anything else, because, look, I mean. I, and I'm not, I'm not like being willfully obtuse here. I know longtime listeners know I have an opinion on this, but I'm more interested to you know hear what you have to you have to say about this and that and that it it feels very odd that it we got to this stage and then we have events take place which yeah you can make the arguments that you made Dex, but at the same time we can make another argument that's very willful and that like there was studio interference for a particular purpose. Like I sit down and I watch movies that when I've seen the original cut of the movie and I see the actual intended cut of the movie, I don't care if it's the original cut of Blade Runner or it's the original cut of Batman v Superman. I see these movies and I go, where did these edits come from? If they weren't willful to destroy, like the, like they weren't there to destroy the film. I, I and, and to destroy the the director or whatever. The, like sometimes there is willful intent on the part of of uh, outside actors, and I just feel like that that's there's a part of that that's part of this conversation because I think it's having to now it's it's beginning to uh, bear itself out and where we think we're going, right? Uh, so. Well, so so I guess the two like, like we can I think dispense with the film metaphor a little bit and just say like look i think dod and state have different agendas Mm -hmm. um dod loves to burn money which is one of the reasons why i think that in a pivot to asia they forgot that afghanistan's in asia um and that bagram air base is a very useful thing to pester the chinese with like they literally want to pivot to asia they're like, we're all about, you know, containing China. So the first thing we're going to do is give up a billion dollar air base that's literally uh, 85 miles from the Chinese border. Right. Oh, OK. But you guys are real smart. Like, I, I'm not saying I want us to be there forever. I'm just right. saying in the context of saying we're going to pivot to Chinese containment. Now, granted, right. most of Western China is not, you know, there's not like a lot of it. I mean, China's big. OK, like so right. flying from Bagram to wherever is but still, it's a freaking beautiful right. piece of heart, you know, real estate to to make the Chinese think twice about doing a whole lot of things. Right. And they're like, oh, we could we we were not going to we're going to go fuck around in the Philippines and do boat stuff. Like, OK, right. it's right. like, like and, and state, what does state want to do? I, I'm not clear anymore if state has any objectives related to the national interest. Um, involved in its machinations or if it's just a way for money to be like pilfered and and distributed to like those who are recently you know alumni of our illustrious ruling class um but you know it's it's hard to get more cynical about how we conduct our foreign policy when it comes to that level you know like these pallets of cash and all the stuff that you see right I, um, it's yeah, to me it's just it just feels willful at this point do you like, want to talk about what who you see the actors are like so we had talked about there was an article in uh, conservative treehouse i don't mm. read over there too often and i'm not i'm not sure about 
how they uh, they do any research. But I found the article interesting nonetheless, um, and I don't think it's even important if if we agree per se with it. But I, I might want to just kind of beat that um, around a little bit because right. it's an interesting layout of how someone else sees the you know. I mean, at some point you have to ask who are we talking about? Like, how do these right. teams line up? Because the output's been so crazy. There's got to be a you know a way to kind of break this Figure down. Yeah. All right. So the article uh, that the Dex is talking about is uh, the on uh, conservative treehouse is called Sunday Talk. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is very nervous contemplating the full weight of the Department of State and Intel community aligning against by Biden on Afghanistan. It was published on the 29th of August. You can find it over there. It was written by Sun, uh, user Sundance over there, whose um, who's work I, I, I sometimes gets reposted over on Zero Hedge and other places like that. So I've seen his his byline before. I'm not sure if he's the regular conservative trios guy, if there's a, a, a group of them over there. But one of the things he talks about, and he mostly the article that in question is about how Blinken was incredibly nervous and, and really giving away the, you know, the the fact that he's not in charge of anything over and you know at the Department of State that the Secretary of State is really just a figurehead is this his argument is just a figurehead for what's actually going on in the machinations uh, deeper within the Department of State and so uh, his he breaks it down into kind of two different teams right and this is like and so you have the Department of State which is kind of aligned with the CIA and their media PR firms which are CNN CNN International and the Washington Post. Uh, their ideology ideology is favorable to the United Nations. Uh, their internal corruption is generally driven by relations with foreign actors. So this would be people like Hillary Clinton, the Clinton Global Initiative, John McCain, Qatar, the Muslim Brotherhood, and then interestingly, a whole bunch of people um, that are would nominally be associated with Barack Obama, Cass Sunstein, Samantha Power, Susan Rice, and of course, then the you know, Council on Foreign Relations. Now on Team Two, we have the White House aligned with the Pentagon. And the National Security Council and their PR firms are time or think people like the New York Times, Politico, and their internal cor- corruption is generally driven by domestic influences. And this is where he lumps Barack Obama in with the Bush clan, Wall Street, the big banks, multinational corporations, defense contractors, FBI, and community activists and the, and the rest. And you and I talked about this before we, we, we went live because we were going to bring this article up. And we just found like the, the shakeout of those two teams. Well, r- largely, I think, interesting and and correct the barack obama thing doesn't make any sense and then uh to me it's like what team is barack obama actually playing for so i'm i'll throw that back out to you yeah i i i agree like um and again um i don't you know i don't know where they get their their background and you know Mm -hmm. they might have sources that inform this opinion better than than you know others that's fine Mm -hmm. And I, I will tell you, you know, I'll put my biases on the table in the sense of how I've seen Obama over the past 12 years. Um, the the sort of archetype for me um, to explain Obama has been sort of the uh, far left vandal. Like, you know, I, I, I a little bit over the top sometimes with my, you know. Oh, no, he's a I describe him as a Marxist, you know, um, <laughs> he's a but, but but I come from, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm realistic, you know, in the sense that sure. I, some of it is hyperbole. But but he's he he's always been for me something someone who has been explained best by the concept of look, as soon as you stop believing he's got an agenda of some positive outcome and you start realizing that he just wants to destroy that which, you know, he hates, which in this case is his Viewpoint that America is colonial power, whatever nonsense 
idiocy that he believes, um, then everything made a lot more sense to me in his administration. Because every time he thought he had an agenda to achieve something, you'd be like, oh, he doesn't have any follow through. But the one thing he had follow through on every time was just anything against the national interest. Mm -hmm. And I mean in the broad sense. So putting him on the team as they do here with George Bush is disruptive to me and my metaphor. And again, maybe I'm wrong. But for me, the 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 conflict there is I view, you know, George Bush, they don't even say W or HW, but I think there's the obviously when you talk about the Bushes, there's a through line to the intelligence community, to uh, a lot of energy, wealth, uh, specifically right. oil mm-hmm. and uh, all the connections you you would draw from that. And if you put Obama on that team, you kind of have to then shift Obama to being some sort of CIA asset, you know, this sort of faceless man, this Manchurian candidate for the deep state, which I could see. It's just never the way I've seen it. Um, Right. You know, I I see him as the red diaper, you know, surrounded by leftists, um, Frank Marshall Davis, kind of like just lots of weird stuff. But his mom did work for one of those weird CIA front companies. So even though she's surrounded by commies, maybe there's another story there. I just don't know. See, and this is why, you know, I I read things like this and I just keep going. But guys, you're missing the obvious point, which is that both of those organizations, both Team A and Team B, represent different aspects of what I like to call Davos. Like they're all globalists. You know, it's it it the Wall Street's just as globalist as um as, as the Council on Foreign Relations and the you know there it's all about uh, ultimately I just see this as that's where the unifying script is for me that's where like the unifying thing is when I finally made the the connection that it's it's not really Team A and Team B they're just they fight amongst themselves and we wind up with Afghanistan because they were and to me it just always this is it always feels like well. They wanted an outcome in Afghanistan that was deeply humiliating for the United States, per your Obama is a commie vandal argument. But they didn't want it this bad because now it's thrown everybody under the bus because now everybody looks bad. Like the and you know one of the other arguments around Afghanistan we're not talk, touching on, of course, is the CIA's covert operations there. So those two things are going to be at odds with one another. And in some ways, the outcry from various media outlets and various teams, it simply comes down to the White House screwed up the evacuation, which has now left a lot of CIA assets vulnerable in Afghanistan. And now they're all angry with each other. And well, at the same it, time- yeah, it seems likely that, that opium production is going to stop. So, mm-hmm. you know, whether the CIA still values that as part of their black money you know, pipeline or not right. is given the fact that we're just printing so much money, it seems kind of tedious to actually have to grow opium and process poppies, you know, like to, mm-hmm. to have dark money when you can just instantiate a trillion dollars and no one's like, yeah, hey, put it over there with the other 20 trillion, you know? Right. It's like maybe we're just over the actual work, like everyone's overworking, even the dark spook CIA, like drug world. They're like, yeah, hey, we're just not going to work anymore. Fuck it. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, like, exactly. You know, like, I, I mean, and that's, sounds cynical but I, I literally think it's explanatory um <laughs> and <laughs> i don't know why that i don't know why that struck me as funny by the way i just it just did like uh, this it, that's I, I, dude we're all tired like like the <laughs> level of stuff of, of i mean jesus anyway um 
the thing in Afghanistan now is is you know so what is going on with this whole like you know no one no one had heard of ISIS K period until they were like oh ISIS is going to hit the airport and then boom ISIS hits the airport and you know the day after the Turks left that station the Turks who have been very involved with ISIS from the, the inception of ISIS right. um you know and and here's here's an angle that we haven't talked about that is part of of some of the confusion that I think will happen fo- on a forward basis. So, what is the American relationship with Pakistan going to be like? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of pieces in Pakistan that are pro and anti-Taliban. There's a Pakistani Taliban that is highly you know linked to Pakistani ISI. Mm-hmm. There's lots of linkage between the CIA and all these these individual actors. Then you have the very strange, more recent. Uh, you know, just Erdogan's ambitions in Central Asia are very, very large. They're insane, but yes. they're there. And I think that, you know, we, we haven't, I don't think the Turks are going to abandon the idea of being involved in this theater. I think this is going to put them at odds with Pakistan directly. I think this is the the sort of Sunni-Sunni like power struggle at a level that we haven't seen before. Um, I do not think Turkey is going to win, but I do think Turkey is actively trying to do things right now to play things to their advantage. And I also hope that our U.S. military has carefully examined whether Turkey played any role in um, the the um, the empowering of ISIS-K to pull off this attack, because I think you're going to see on a forward basis um the complete breaking of Turkey and NATO. But I also think Turkey is going to wind up being almost a, a, like a lone wolf. And it's going to be very interesting how U.S. interests in Central Asia are impacted by Turkey going off the rails. And I think mm-hmm. we could have seen the first element of this at the airport bombing. Mm. No, I, and that tracks with with the with uh, President Erdogan's very tenuous relationship with Vladimir Putin and Russia. Like Putin's not happy with with the way Erdogan uh, handled things in Armenia with Nagorno Karabakh at, at all. Um, he's not happy with the way he's been, he's betrayed him multiple times in Idlib and Syria. So, you know, but at the same time, like, you know, Erdogan has become like kind of everybody's problem child because he's one of those people that, you know, every time somebody else screws up, he sees it as the opportunity for him to take, you know, to take an inch. And, um, I wonder, you know, I, I wonder going forward here because, look, the everybody has been talking about from the from a foreign policy perspective, certainly from the neocon perspective, that this is a tragedy in Afghanistan that's from a geopolitical perspective because we've now ceded, you know, all this lithium and all these minerals and, and the mineral wealth of Afghanistan to the Chinese and the Russians. Well, really, at the end of the day, the Russians just wanted a, a stable southern border. Uh, and that's all they've been asking for for, you know, uh, I don't know, 30 years now. And then um, and all of Putin's uh, policies and interventions and, and diplomacy have been towards that end. And that's why, in many ways, why the Taliban were able to, you know, make the deals that you talked about earlier when all the tribal heads get together and they agree we'll switch from red hat to blue hat and we're good to go and here have the weapons and be done because we don't want any bloodshed. We're done with the bloodshed. Um well, that was all that groundwork was laid by the the Russians, Russian diplomacy, along with you know Pakistani diplomacy as well. So yeah, you're right. It's going to be a very complicated relationship going forward uh, of all, balancing all these factions. And I know the Saudis have also who have a you know, huge influence in Pakistan as well. So um, 
it's going to be interesting because, you know, the Taliban has been in negotiations, not just with the United States, but with the Saudis and Qatar and others around the region in order to set up this transition of power. And I just find it very odd that, you know, there's, a, there's obviously a power vacuum coming. I don't want to go too far into that, into, into, this, into this situation from that perspective, because it's all kind of off topic of what we were talking about originally, which is, you know, how many different factions are fiefdoms are impacted by the collapse of Afghanistan and the, the confused nature of this. So, um, yeah, just, I mean, I, I'm just concerned we're going to have a return to the Obama policy of using um, ISIS as a, you know, a, as a Sunni army. Mm -hmm. um to achieve weird destabilizing goals while at the same time like sort of distancing ourselves from like the more like whatever feelings i have about saudi arabia and they're not particularly positive but like mm -hmm. the, the obama policy of courting iran and sort of pushing saudi arabia aside um I, i'm just concerned like i think the reality of dealing with the post-mortem on afghanistan is understanding how badly the relationship with Pakistan um, has been managed and how much we've been screwed over by the PACs. And, and mm -hmm. you know, they they have their own domestic agenda. That's fun. You know, I get it. I don't mm -hmm. judge them for having self-interest and, and realizing that eventually America was going to leave and they've got to, like, you know, live next to Afghanistan. So there's there's I, I don't begrudge them at all. But, you know, we paid a lot of money to people for things that never happened. And we were, you know, and, and again, I'm not saying we have a right to dictate or complain too much. But um, I do think that when when the inevitable question is asked, like, what how did this go this wrong? You know, it's there's going to be a reframing of the U.S.-Pakistan relationship. And mm -hmm. under Trump, it was, you know, India was definitely coming into a much more direct um alliance with the u.s which although Absolutely. people have never you know india and the u.s has have been have had strange relationships for many years and i think inevitably to contain china you have to be friends with india and um um i think that that the inertia of that move is probably pretty absolute and you know and that's separate yeah i don't i don't i don't, I don't see I, I don't see india i mean with the with the way this has gone out india was never happy with the diplomatic efforts of the Russians to have the Pakistanis lead the talks. Like that was the first thing that every that they complained about. I mean, the, the Indians were livid about this back in 20. I remember when this when these talks first started back in December 2016, they were livid about this. It's part of what allowed Trump to be able to come in and sweet talk Modi and, you know, start that process. I, it's interesting. You say that um, just to go back to your point earlier, I just want to agree with you and say, look, I, I'm you're worried about uh, Obama using ISIS. To, no, that's exactly what I think the, the whole purpose of this is. Is and they were we were supposed to leave in such a way as to leave as much infrastructure behind as possible to allow for uh, for allow for this the, the you know the harassment of the Taliban trying to uh, establish a, a stable government. And that was the whole point uh, of, of what part of what we were supposed to be leaving behind. And it just and it, I think it failed completely. And I think everybody's angry about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, my my. My dislike of John McCain was for many reasons, but not the least and probably the most was due to his involvement with the creation of ISIS and this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the United States committing genocide and war crimes right. and especially not explicitly so, which is what happened under Obama. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, ISIS, 
slaughtered tons of people. Um, those weren't all fake, uh, you know, things. And they did so with our weapons and coordination through us and Turkey and through weird back channel support that obviously the Turks were playing their own cards on top of the cards that, mm-hmm. you know, there's just a lot of strange uh things that go on when you when you talk about the whole clinton mccain industrial complex and turkey and um i I just like the last thing the middle east needs is the return of isis and if they're just gonna you know create some tribe of isis over in afghanistan you know hence the moniker the k you know Mm -hmm. oh look we have a branded variant of isis great and they're gonna do that just to mess with the taliban okay that's one thing i mean i still don't want them doing that and i hope the taliban destroy isis because i just do <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. um it doesn't you don't have to play a, a favor that's this binary nonsense like you can just you can just wish isis to be eradicated mm-hmm. you don't have to like that doesn't mean anything about supporting the taliban right um but we, we've just i don't know we've just entered this sort of like I, you know, what we're talking about in this podcast right now is kind of the question of direction. Is this directionless? Mm-hmm. Is this complete incompetence? Is it have no script? Or is this self-interested factions working at, at odds against each other, you know? Mm-hmm. And does some of that self-interest include literal political corruption? Like, are some of these pallets of cash being diverted to Switzerland? Two numbered accounts controlled by, I don't know, the Clinton Global Initiative. Probably not in this case, but, but right. I'm using it as an example of the type of corruption I'm talking about. Right. And that has happened in the past. Mm-hmm. Well, after Afghani left uh, Afghanistan with something like $186 million. Right, right. And, right. And, and leaving and had to like leave a bag of cash on the ground because it couldn't fit in the plane. Correct. You know, that kind of thing. It's just ridiculous. And somehow we're supposed to be, you know, and we're supposed to feel bad about this ridiculous operation ending after all of our quote-unquote tax money and our blood and our time and, and everything else that this was our policy and these are our, our this is our leaders and this goes b- well beyond the biden administration or anybody else biden's just the bag man for this and a perfect bag man because he's you know he's barely cognizant and, and incompetent so now the bigger question is and you know and i i mused on this last week and i know um you gave me who some do you, help during- who do you think our president is Oh, I think it's Obama. The chase. I think it's okay. Obama. I mean, I've been calling it the Obama administration or, or Susan Rice, take your pick, uh, for, you know. For, well, as conduit, not as. Yeah, not as not as actual you know, policymaker. I think I think Obama is. And I and I and I think our our and I mean, I think our presidency and I think our policy at this point is being driven by extraterritorial factors. I don't think the people who are running the country are running the country, as you said earlier, for the, the American interest. I think that's why the, the script feels so wrong. And that what they're in the process of doing now is trying to, you know, they're trying to fix the bad reviews on the movie by, you know, by buying off the reviewers now. Right. I mean, that's part of what they're doing now. So, like, I've seen this before. Right. So it's like they 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 the the the, the thing fell apart. And now that we've now we need to get rid of Biden. And I'll, and I'll be honest with you. This is the way I think this thing is playing out. This is where I think the script is now. Biden was installed as president to be weak. Because a weak president is you neutralize the most powerful office in the world, the presidency of the United States, right? This is the most powerful man in the world. And uh, if you put a weak person in there, you create a power vacuum. You create negative space, as you and I have talked about before. Well, 
that's useful for a certain amount of time. And all policies and all processes have a finite lifespan, have a finite time span where they're effective. Everything has a time, you know, every options contract has a time, you know, a time quotient to it, right? So um, at some point, that value has to go to zero. There's a time value to all things. Now, going forward, after the collapse in Afghanistan, especially in this way, now, and all the fiefdoms are angry with each other. DOD is angry with the CIA, CIA is angry with the White House, White House is angry with all of them, yada, yada, yada. Now you need a stronger person to come in and take the reins because you've created paralysis and chaos, and now you're going to need a stronger uh, hand at the till. And that's what I think, that's where I think this thing goes next. That's why I wrote the article that I wrote last week. Where I talked about yeah, the potential yeah. for Janet Yellen being president, but just as easily I could see John Kerry. Um, so, for the same reason. Yeah, I, I think that. I mean, I, I I think back to the Democratic convention and the insane like dancing, uh, whatever that was, and the <laughs> and the and the, uh, and the stars and stripes in green. Right. Um, I. I think back to then and think to myself, wow, did these people really think they were going to win? Or is this, it could this be as disorganized, you know, as some other things that have happened? Like, like no one expected Trump to win. Trump didn't expect to win. Trump hadn't even prepared to win in mm -hmm. many departments. Like they didn't even have people picked out. Um, and, and you look back to like even 92, with how Bill Clinton got the nomination, like there are chaotic processes that happen. And what's interesting is, you know, like how the hell did we wind up with Biden? Like if if they were going to cheat to defeat Trump, like how the hell, like if you if you view the world as a top down conspiracy, how do you how do you engineer like literally to cheat to come up with an 80 million vote total and be like, you know who we're going to put at the top of the ticket? Joe Biden. Right. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. It's like this is the most demented star chamber like ever. Like they're all on mescaline. Like <laughs> it's like <laughs> they're like, wait, no, this will totally work, man. And you're just like, dude, um, sometimes the, the meat will hurt you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really I mean, my point is not that I don't think that I think the election was valid. My point is that. A lot of people um, imagine levels of conspiracy, and I'm not saying there isn't, mm -hmm. but I'm saying is that a lot of this is a mashup. And those mm -hmm. that are in charge, like they run with, like they, they control the nexus points of power. Like they control how one gets a pallet of cash from the Treasury Department in Kansas City, from the printer to, onto a C-130 you know, to uh, mm -hmm. Cyprus and then to a, a refuel and then land in Afghanistan. I don't know how that happens. They do. Right. Like there's pragmatic questions. Like how did a pallet of cash wind up? Does the president just push a button? No, there's there's people who don't know how to do that in the government. Like Jen Psaki, she can't make that happen. Right. Somebody knows how to make that happen. How do you get all these like, you know, M4s, you know, uh, that, you know, we have budgets and apportionment and like, you know, the military has inventory, right? Like, right. I, I guarantee you all those containers full of American arms that you see, those didn't get taken from the armory at Fort Benning. Right. They came from somewhere else. 
how, how did it happen? We don't know, but somebody knows. And those people occupy each jumping off point. And, and, and the, the names change, the times change, you know, but they still know how to fly planes full of guns and money, uh, you know, and an occasional lawyer, just to, you know, not miss the pun, um, from point A to point B. You know, that's that's where they that, that's what they know how to do. And even if weird crap happens like, you know, Bill Clinton or Donald Trump or senile ice cream man become president, they, they can still roll with it. Right. And, and so I think, you know, that's where I see the world is like these guys are improvis improvisational, you know, uh it's a, it's a conspiracy of improvisers, not not a top-down star chamber, because yeah, I, I think they would have come up with a better script. Right. All right, right. I mean, now, some certain things, I think they do have their script, like, laid out and what they're doing, right? I or, think or that maybe that, it doesn't matter who runs the government. All that matters is who runs the Fed and the ECB. Hi, Tom. And who are you talking to? Like, what's the name of this fucking podcast? Like, Jesus Christ. Here, so. yeah. here's, your, here's your catnip. Purr, purr. <laughs> Thank you. So, I mean, yeah, it, 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 it is. But even so, I don't even think it's that. I don't even think it's that that simplistic. I don't even think it's that reductionist. I mean, the older I get, the more I do this, the less reductionistic about this I get. The more I argue with people, I'm like. I was been arguing with people all day on Twitter about you know the rate at which the Chinese want to replace the dollar as the world's reserve currency and the, you know what moves they have to make. I'm like, guys, you're all thinking way too quickly here. Like, I, the older I get, the the more I see this stuff happening. You know, I, I I see very stepwise movements by very smart people that when this happens, they make this small move, they make that move over here, they make that move over here, they make that move over there, because no one really wants to upset the apple cart too much. They just want to find their angle with which to install this thing, which then will build into something else later on. And they build their, you know, their tower of tyranny, you know, brick by brick and moment by moment. The Otherwise, what was also in that great that that conservative treehouse article was he, he the guy described the Biden presidency as like a big Jenga tower that Obama can literally just pull a piece out of whenever he wants to in order to make it more and more unstable until the point being the whole thing collapses. And I think we're at that moment. And I think that's an also a really good metaphor for where this whole thing is laying out, because, you know, look, I've met a lot of musicians in my life and I man, you and I ages ago, like, you know, did some improvisational jazz. And I, you know, I can tell you that, like, that shit for the most part doesn't work. Like, most people are really bad at it. And it usually just winds up being, you know, like, well, let's just do two two things. And uh, let's you, just you do need, two You chords. need a fake book. I mean, a yeah. fake book is the is the is the book that has all the chord heads. Like, if you right. improvise, improvise a solo, that's one thing. But right. without a chord structure that you wrote long before you know that obeys rules of harmony and melody you know then you don't have anything and, right you have and you have nothing and and so and i think that that's where they are right yeah and they're I, they're three jazz solos short of a fake book is what they are right <laughs> and, and and worse than that they also have or if the fake book that they have is in 12 tone yeah. Like, <laughs> and they got the E flat version, and they're, they're they're guitar players, and they can't figure out why everything sounds right. Why everything that's, that's <laughs> I got all these these songs are hard, man. 
yeah, they're all hard. Why are we playing an E flat again? I, I don't so yeah. Ah. So I, it's, it's all just really kind of silly. And worse than that, most of them don't have any real world experience except knowing how to make piles of cash, go on to C 130s, to wind up on right. a, oh, wind up on a CIA also, airstrip. They're also the tone deaf and they've never played this instrument. That's well, that you know, too. There's the, and there's that to go along with it. And so, you know, good jazz has structure and then bad jazz. Well, you know, bad jazz is good, where good, you good music and good movies and good stories have structure because, you know, that's you because know, they again, have purpose. Right. Like like this is all about entropy versus order. And right. I, I don't think anything in U.S. foreign policy, whether we're talking about the story of or the planning of it has been premised on order. It's been premised on, it really has been premised on imp- improvising like a story to meet whatever the, like the short-term political problem of that given administration. And and at each point, it's like I said about the surges. Surges worked every time they were tried. And the real problem is they created the same problem every time they were tried is that they reestablished that the U.S. can win tactical battles, you know, convincingly and authoritatively in Afghanistan, but to what purpose? And the worst thing about every surge that worked in Afghanistan is it begged the inevitable question of why are we here? (laughs) What are we doing? And Mm -hmm. no one ever wanted to answer that question because no one ever had an answer for that question. And 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 so finally, we're at the point where we're like, no, we're going to do the opposite of the surge. We're going to leave. And they screwed it up. But there you go. And, you know, because no one really wanted the movie to ever end. They just wanted to trap us in, you know, Andy Warhol's Day and Alive for 24 hours, as opposed to actually telling us a story. And, you know, whatever the name of Andy Warhol's 24-hour movie is, right? Right, um, right. right. So was what I'm referencing here. But as opposed to giving us, a, you know, something with a beginning, a middle, and end, the midpoint turn, pop point number one, the end of act two, and a resolution of the denouement. Well, the resolution of the denouement now is that we're just kind of, we're stuck. It's like I watched, I'll give you a perfect example of a bad film I watched recently. And that was um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Jim Jarmusch movie, the... Um, the dead don't, the dead don't, the dead, the, the dead rises. I can't even remember the name of it now. So the zombie movie with Bill Murray and Adam Driver. It has no ending, other than, well, Jarmus just wanted to yell at us that we're all consumers. Like, okay, well, thank you for being a moldy old lefty. Um, that was the point of this. Like, really? Well, that's wow. Well, you know, maybe you can make a crucifix out of a dollar bill. Yeah, I, maybe. Yeah, gosh, you know, for. Oh, I don't know what we're going to do here. Like, uh, and I just, I'm looking at the same thing. And when I, when I look at what I see Davos doing, I, that's exactly what I see. I see this kind of, this kind of cheap hectoring from a bunch of old farts who've never actually done anything, you know, worthwhile in their entire lives and have no purpose. And I say, I hate to say that about a guy like Jarmusch, to throw a guy like Jim Jarmusch on the bus, because he's actually made good movies in his life. Just not that one. Um, You know, I wish, I wish that I thought the biggest problem with U.S. policy in Afghanistan is that we were like, we were colonialists who thought we were going to nation build these goat herders into like some Jeffersonian democracy. I mean, as ridiculous as that might have been, it at least, at least would have been an ethos, man. (laughs) I, I, I think that, I think that the sad thing as this comes to a close is that it's likely been a, a grift the whole time. Right. I think a lot of people have diverted a lot of funding. I think a lot of Afghans have paid with their lives. I think a lot of American contractors went over there and 
did whatever they did and got a lot of money. I think a lot of money got shuttled into Pakistan. And uh, and I think a lot of money got diverted to the interests of, you know, the third co-producer who uh, nobody ever saw on set. Right. And is just there in the credits. And uh, I, I don't have a good feeling about us spending a trillion dollars in there for 20 years and not only having nothing to show for it, but now having to. The worst takeaway is that, like I said before, the U.S. military did not get beaten. The problem is everyone thinks it did. And what that's going to lead to is that we're going to have to prove what we should never have had to prove, which is that you should still be scared of the American military. So now what's going to happen is someone's going to test us in a way that we're going to have to show them that we can still blow shit up. And that was an unnecessary situation to end with. But that's where we are. So look for that in North Korea. Look for it in Taiwan. Look for it in in the Spratly Islands. Look at it in Somalia or Eritrea or wherever you want, you know, something to happen where people will now think the U.S. military can't blow shit up, which is definitely a bad takeaway here. It's that the military, the U.S. government is horrible at strategy and is possibly conflicted by a nest full of vipers that are willing to still steal millions of dollars. And for whatever reason, we can't even figure out how to stop them. Yeah, no, it's, that's, that's, that's the thing. And, and, uh, on, on that bombshell, uh, I think it might be time to end because, you know, I don't know about you, but I ain't looking forward to that sequel. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my friend. Um, thank you very I, much. It's good to chat as always. And it's always illuminating. I always appreciate it. So, uh, we will, uh, for everybody else, this has been the end of uh, episode 83 of the Gold Ghost Guns podcast. Uh, I'll be back sometime soon with something else, and we'll do the thing. So you guys take care. You be well. We'll talk soon. Keep your sick on the eyes. <laughs>